When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You guys, this is one of my best rock casts. I interviewed Mary Elizabeth Williams, an opera star based out of Milan, Italy. Mary is a true Renaissance woman and a good vibe soul. She's not only an opera star, she is a lover of so many different things. She's a reader, she's a writer, she has experiences in so many different domains. We cover her journey from the city of Philadelphia to Luther College to her decision to become and to follow her passion of becoming an opera star, what it was like along the way. And it wasn't always inevitable that she was going to take the path that she did. We, we talked about some, sort of some of the decision-making points that she made along the way. We don't only cover that, we cover her self-care strategies, her book recommendations, um, her views on the liberal arts. We also have a discussion on our, our shared hero, Weston Noble our choir director that we both had at Luther College in the mid-1990s. That's how I know Mary. Um, she is a friend of mine. Uh, but it was just a really good conversation with this sort of incandescent soul. Uh, Mary is such a good life person. This is going to be one that you should put in through your podcast playlist and put it in for your, your weekend walk. I think it's going to be something you're really going to need to soak up and listen to and listen to it again. Uh, be sure to spread the Rocket Cast to others because the only way this podcast can grow is by word of mouth. Um, if you haven't yet, uh, leave a review on either iTunes or Spotify. Um, so this will help sort of spread the message of the Rocket Cast. This is a liberal arts podcast. I to sort of share our sense of wonder and joy as to the liberal arts and mind, body, and spirit. And I couldn't have a better person to sort of demonstrate the principles of this podcast than Mary Elizabeth Williams. So much gratitude that she took the time to spend with me to discuss her views on life, singing, and the act of becoming a world-class opera star on this episode of The Rocket Cast. Mary Elizabeth Williams, how are you doing? Hi! It's so nice to be here with you. Thank you for asking me to be a part of your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. And it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been watching your career from afar and with great admiration. And for <laughs> Friends of the Rocky cast, Mary Elizabeth Williams is not only a famous opera singer, but she also actually knows me. Like our lives intersected for a short period of time. That's so short. Well, not yeah, yeah, I guess four years. It seems short now. <laughs> um, but Mary and I were both fellow students at Luther College. And we were on Nordic Choir together for two years. So we're going to explore a lot of topics about Nordic Choir, Weston Noble, Mary's self-care, who she is, how she got to Luther College. This is going to be an awesome episode, maybe, maybe one of my best ever. I'm not going to try to put too much pressure on you. Wow, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, no, exactly. So I've already given you a little bit of a brief introduction, but who is Mary Elizabeth Williams? Well, I am a singer, an artist, a wife. Um, I think that I try really hard 
in my life to maintain balance. It is true, I think from the outside that I have spent most of my life going after this elusive career of being a performing artist, but I have always at every step of, of my journey tried very hard to continue feeding the other parts of my personality and, and keeping alive other interests. So I would say that I am a constant seeker of emotional and um, creative balance. Yes, and you, you, are, you said you're a singer, but I don't know if that does total justice. I mean, I'm a singer, but you know, no one knows Cole as a singer. You, you are a very well-known, should I say, famous opera singer, or do you explore other, uh, other types of singing? So, so, so mind that a little bit more. Well, I mean, I, first of all, I wouldn't say that I'm famous. I would say that uh, I'm a successful working classical singer. And I'm very, very grateful for that, especially in the world climate for performing arts, even before the pandemic. It was difficult mm -hmm. to make a career as a performing artist um, and also have a work-life balance. So I have been extremely fortunate and I know that. Um, so far in my life, I'm 44 at this moment in time and in the 20 years of my career so far, I have spent most of my time singing opera. Mm -hmm. I sing a few concerts here and there, classical mm -hmm. concerts, some jazz concerts actually. Mm -hmm. um, but I like to say that I'm a singer as opposed to an opera singer or a, you know, something specific because I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I don't know. Uh, I know that I want to keep singing as long as my vocal cords buzz, you know, I want to keep singing, but maybe I won't want to sing opera or maybe I'll want to change the type of opera that I sing, or uh, maybe I'll move into some different, kind of expression. And I mean, I started singing in the church. So um, I have a very strong sort of generalized affection for making music, singing, singing. And, and I love what you said about that, that you don't sort of just have one type of music that you do. And you talked about how long you can perform as an opera singer. I took voice lessons at Luther College. And I recall that my instructor, it was actually Wayne Mitchell, said that there are basically seasons of the voice in terms of when you grow, when you, when you quote unquote peak, um, and when you sort of shift to other types of singing. And so yes. for the type of what in, in the opera venue uh, or, or genre, what, how do you describe your voice and what traditionally is what's considered the optimal age for peak performance in terms of the voice? Well, I would say that it's constantly changing, which is part of the, the thing that makes crafting a career very frustrating, but it's also very exciting mm -hmm. because you never know. Um, I think that recording uh, and also um, live streaming, even before the pandemic, you know, the met live HD recording, that kind of stuff mm -hmm. has really, made everything sort of shift younger. Mm -hmm. So because they like, and also a certain requirement of the public, of mm -hmm. the audience to have mm -hmm. realism. You know, they mm -hmm. want people that look like 
the characters that they're portraying. And, you know, I'm of two minds about that. I think that that's reasonable. We are there to tell a story. But I also think that we do, as audience members, have to have a certain suspension of disbelief in order to allow the singers, the performers, to mature enough to, to be able to do the, the roles justice. And so I'm sort of on the fence about that, honestly. I have found that in general in my career, I have always regularly been asked to tackle the next step mm-hmm. about five years earlier than I thought I should. Wow. So and that's based on what uh, previous generations told me to expect. You know, yeah. that I would be singing Verity at this age, Wagner at this age. They're always about five years off. And I think probably by the time I am old enough to be regularly mentoring students, my experience might be five years off. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, it's changing constantly mm-hmm. is the short answer. Yeah. And, you know, in my one of my previous podcasts I had on Brad Lund. I don't know if you know Brad at all. Um, he was a year ahead of us. Yeah, the name is familiar, and, probably in most and, and we And we talked about the relevance of the liberal arts, and I, because I think it's always this ongoing general question. Um, you actually have a career in the arts. Uh, so you, it, made, it wouldn't necessarily made sense you'd have gone to Luther College for opera, but you are doing an art-related feel. And so in that sense, your education was relevant to what you're doing. But one of the things that I think the liberal arts does is that it gives us facility in various domains as we weave those together. And I think what struck me about one of your original comments was, is it seems like you want versatility. Um, One book we covered in Brad's podcast was a book called Range by David Epstein. And he was triumphing and celebrating the generalist. Uh Doesn't mean we don't dive deep into skill set, but what he was saying is, the importance of domain match, matching skill with what you do is so important. And if you don't do that, you can't get the alignment. But how do you know that? So the liberal arts allows you to explore all of these different domains. It's not that you won't specialize, but it allows you to sample before you do dive deep. And it sounds like in your career, that liberal arts background that you got at Luther College allows you that versatility that as your voice evolves, it doesn't seem like you're fearing that you're embracing that to say like, okay, you know, we talked about ancient traditions before we got started. You're, you're going to accept your fate as your voice evolves and you're going to adapt to it. So I don't know if you could elaborate on that. Well, yeah, I think it, it extends beyond singing. I mean, I think that I am trying in my adulthood, in my forties to really be open to accepting my fate in general, mm-hmm. because as we have all experienced in the last four or five years, things go ways we don't expect. And we end up with realities that we did not plan for in lots of ways. Mm -hmm. And so um, I try always to be very honest with myself about what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, how I can contribute, where it's best if I ask for contributions from other people and, uh, I think when I'm honest and when I know myself, I can be of most use, basically. And so as a singer, I know myself pretty well. I know what I'm good at. I know what needs work. I know what's capable of working on and what 
I'm just always going to suck at because there are things like what you say, this is just really not something that I'm ever going to be able to fix. I can, I can avoid situations where I don't have to, um, you know, expose my underbelly, Yeah. but um, then, but those are few, there are few, but most of the time I spend in my life looking at the things that I can fix, that I can get better at that I can improve and the things that I'm already really good at that I really want to excel beyond even my own conceptualization of, of and, how and that's I think, And that's ultimately, I think the sign of a mature mind is the ability to engage in self-examination and see yourself as if you're looking at a third person, both as to what you really do well and what you didn't. And you know, I think we're gonna sort of explore a little bit of the ancient traditions one philosopher that has changed my life is Epictetus. And he wrote a book called The Enchiridion, which is essentially a book of Stoic living and virtue written a couple thousand years ago. And I really only like the first sentence. The rest of it, not as good. But the first, <laughs> the first sentence is, is, is basically something along the lights of, likes of the art of living is focusing on what you can control and completely ignoring what you can't. And then there are some domains in the middle which you can partially control, but you can't. And for me, that has been very resonant because how much emotional energy do we spend on things that we can't control? Yes. Um, when there is this huge domain of things that we can control, uh, what time we get up in the morning, self-care practice, journaling practice. And it sounds like as you look at your life as an artist, you focus on what are the things I can control that I'm good at and engage in self-examination and what parts, you know, it's not, yeah. I'm not good at, and I'll never be able to, to, to change that. Um, right. you know, like for example, our friend, Sarah Gowen, she has a different type of voice than you do. Right. Right. So, so there are probably certain things that she will be able to do. And I don't know if she's still singing professionally at all, but, um, or whether she is. Professionally, I'm not sure. I saw her when I was singing in Seattle and I think she still sings, but she, I'm not sure that she's singing professionally, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, she had this ma major big league voice and, 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 but a different type of voice. So, so there are certain things that she could do that probably you would never be able to do. And there's certain things that you can do that she couldn't dream of. And I think that's just sort of the variety of life and, and to embrace that. Like, well, these are my talents and our purpose is, you know, we both studied under Weston Noble in choir together. And so I wanted to mind the topic of getting in alignment with your mind, body, and the spirit. And with you as your career, um, before the show, we talked a little bit about whether you always knew you were going to be an opera singer, a professional opera singer. I had the sense that you did always know that and you pushed back a little bit on that. So what I want you to get to discuss for our audience is, is what was that stage where you're like, wow, this is the direction I want my life to go and explore two things. The moment at which you knew, you know what? I can actually do this. I do have the chops because a lot of people want to be professional opera singers, but most people can't. And what was a gut punch moment where you're like, oh, I don't think I can do it. Someone gave you some negative feedback or you got a bad review. And, and how did you respond to that? Oh, that's like seven questions, Rockney. <laughs> I'm gonna, all right, I'm going to start at the beginning. Basically, I think 
that when I was in school, and I think in every, actually, since I was a child, I've gotten this feedback from other people where they tell me that it was clear to them from the outside that I was very driven and that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so I don't say that you are wrong. Mm -hmm. I just say that inside my own body, that's not the only thing that I was experiencing. I think that when I was at Luther, I was trying really hard to find balance because I have always felt this deep and uh, sort of unending fascination with singing. I love to sing. And my mother said to me once when I was in junior high school already, so I was like 12, she said to me, singing for you is like breathing. When you don't sing, you aren't good. You aren't healthy. You need to sing. And I resisted that. I resisted that. And I have always resisted it, actually. I still resist it because it annoys me and it worries me that something like singing and music and the act of singing would have so much control over my happiness because I like to think of myself as a complicated and multifaceted human being. And there are lots of things that I'm good at and lots of things that I enjoy and lots of ways that I can contribute to the greater good. But it is true, and I'm admitting it to you now, that when I don't sing for long periods of time, I get depressed. And I feel like a part of me is, is atrophying. Mm-hmm. And... So I think probably what you saw at Luther was that I was in this wonderful place, this liberal arts haven, where I could simultaneously sing, but also get a degree in English literature and be forced to take other classes to stretch my mind in other ways that I wasn't just singing. I was singing, but I was also scratching other itches. Uh, intellectually and creatively. And so I felt uh, that it's in the balance that I feel comfortable. And when I start to feel like singing and going after singing is taking up all of my emotional and uh, all of my energy as a human being, I start to worry. I start to worry because I don't like to be too extreme. So that makes me think of a direct question response to what you just said. Um, This question of going to Luther College, although I'm very proud that a surprising number of Luther College graduates have become professional opera singers, but it would probably not be known as a a national opera preparatory environment. So even though I think it way over punches its weight in terms of the number of people that have actually made it, I think of you, I think of Eric Cutler, I think of Aaron Judish, I think of Aaron Sheehan, a, a surprising number, in fact. Yeah, there are a lot of us. I'd say maybe the opera world, because we're really not known as an opera school as such. It's more the core yeah. tradition. Emily Fons, too, who's after us. But yeah. also, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of entered this world. So it's surprisingly, so it, it is sort of, it's not totally inconsistent, but it's not an opera power. And no. it probably would not be a standard advice that you would get someone in New York, go to Luther College. Explain how you got to Luther College and what was your thought process doing that, knowing that you possibly have this opera trajectory? 
So when I was in high school, I was going to be a lawyer and then a, a judge. That was my plan. <laughs> I wanted to be a judge. You know what that makes me think of? By the way, you would be a great judge. I would, I would appoint you. <laughs> do, you know, do you know Albert Einstein thought about selling insurance? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you didn't become a lawyer. But okay, so... You weren't always going to be an opera star because uh, you'd probably be wagging your finger at me right now. Um, so, okay, so I interrupted so you. That, that was my plan. I was going to be a lawyer and then a judge. Okay. And so I, when I was a child, mm -hmm. I went to a, a church, the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia. And it was an American Baptist congregation. And it was in the center of Philadelphia. And we had ringers in our chorus, in our choir, um, from Curtis Institute of Music, which was just around the corner, and also the Academy of Vo Vocal Arts, which was, you know, two blocks down. And so we had all of these young, really good, really ambitious singers uh, that were there was a soprano and a mezzo soprano, a tenor and a bass every Sunday. So I listened to these professionals. And also it just so happened that the, the choir director and organist at that church was from Iowa, John Spong. Oh, and he, yes. yes. So John Spong was the recital accompanist to Cheryl Milnes for many years. Cheryl Milnes is a famous opera singer, American opera singer, who, uh, and so he sort of had his foot, Cheryl, I mean, not Cheryl, um, John Spong had his foot in these two camps where he was, you know, a normal uh, church musician, but then he also would go off and do recitals with Cheryl and he was coaching these young singers that were at AVA and Curtis. And so he knew both worlds. And I was in the church choir because my parents liked to sing and they brought me along. And so I just sang with the church choir, even though I was 10 years old. And so when it started to become time, I started taking voice lessons with the soprano ringer in the, in the church choir. And when it started to be time for me to look at colleges, I told everybody that I wanted to find a good liberal arts college because I wanted to, you know, become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And John looked at me and he looked at my parents and said, that's fine. You can go to a liberal arts college and you can study whatever you want, but you have to go someplace where you can continue to sing because you're going to be a singer. You may not accept that right now, but you're going to be a singer. And so he recommended Luther, which I had never heard of. And my parents, who are both from the Midwest, or actually my father's not from the Midwest, he's, he's from North Carolina, and my mother's from Indiana, they really liked the idea of me going to a Midwestern school because they didn't want me to be very coastal. They wanted me to recognize uh, with true experience that there was plenty of other America out there beyond the East Coast. And the fact that I had spent the first 16 years of my life in Philadelphia. Although they like Philadelphia, they wanted me to have something different. And so they also encouraged it and we went to visit. And we went to visit and I just had one of those moments where I just knew that was where I was supposed to be. And it was very strange because we went in the middle of the summer and there was no one there. And it was pouring down rain. And Kirk Neubauer took me around with my parents all around the campus and there was nobody there because it was August. 
but I just knew, I just knew, I said, this is it. This is where I want to go. I want to go. Did you know, it, so he must have mentioned that it had this choral tradition. Did you get a chance? To Not really. Oh, wow. So you didn't know that. I didn't know about, I didn't know about Nordic. I didn't know about Weston. I mean, I knew that there was a good music department okay. because John told me, John Sprong told me that there was a good music department and he wanted me to, to study with Dave Greedy, but we didn't discuss, we didn't discuss any of that. And I didn't know, I had a gut reaction to Luther. I had a very sort of undeniable, this is where I'm supposed to be moment. And I just followed it. And then I got there and then I found out about Luther. I mean, I'm about Nordic. About Weston and and what he he had done. And so- I I think Weston called me actually, but it didn't compute. Like I didn't, I didn't know who he was. I had never seen Nordic choir. I didn't know any of this stuff. Oh. I went to Luther because I had a feeling. That's it. And I love that because I do think there's so much in life. You know, we've talked about this topic and Weston embraced this in his own work, the mind, the body, the spirit, and how we sort of intersect all of these two. And when you get that sort of Zen state, you feel like your true power. So Weston, I think, really encapsulated that. We'll talk a little bit about some of the great things that he did, but let's continue on your journey, though. So you get to Luther College thinking you're going to be pre-law. Well, and by then, I had said to myself, okay, well, because, you know, I was constantly having this fight about singing, not singing, singing, not singing. So I think by the time I got to Luther, after I had applied and everything, Mm -hmm. I had decided that what I really should do is music management, because then I could stay involved with music, the music world, but I wouldn't actually be singing, which I grew up in a family, you know, my father was a very intelligent and very capable person and he loved music and culture and he was very well informed, but he was also not super excited about the idea that I wanted to be a singer as a profession. He liked very much that I sang, but he always said to me, it's too dangerous it's too dangerous. You are so smart. You could do something that would be much more solid and you'd never have to worry. And what he really meant was I would never have to worry about you. Mm. And in a lot of ways, he was right. I mean, it is dangerous being an an artist. It's hard to put percentages, but I would assume it's on the order of 1% that can actually make a full-time living on it without teaching. I mean, you make your living as a performer. And then maybe top 2%, you get into academia where you sort of navigate maybe regional opera and maybe teach a little bit. And then from there, and I, and I you know, it's, it's church choir. I, I mean, and I love church choir, but, but I mean, that's sort of the amount of opportunity. It, is, that, is that sort of your sense in terms of how difficult? And that's what he was probably thinking. Well, and I think it's, it's fluid. You know, the mm-hmm. thing is, it's changing every month. The... Uh, the feasibility, the cost benefit analysis of trying to pursue an active artist career, it changes constantly. And so part of my job for my own life as my, uh, as my management, as my personal management of my career, a lot of time is spent trying to guess where the market is going and how I can continue to stay um, active and under what circumstances I can continue to stay active. And it's difficult. It's difficult because the market keeps changing. I mean, and so I can't necessarily 
I don't know exactly what the percentage is. It might be even less than that. Uh, I think that in America, it probably is absolutely less than that. Most of the people that I know that are having really good national and sometimes international careers, uh, there's just not enough work for them to only do that and live a comfortable life in America because the costs are so high. Mm-hmm. And so they usually do something else. They teach. Um, some people start businesses uh, that are maybe adjacent to singing. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, really, you have to stay on top of it and try to figure out how you can do, how you can be available to sing when the opportunities arise, but also create a floor for yourself so that if the opportunities don't arise or if you need time off to prepare for something new, that you can still pay your mortgage. Um, What your father was getting at. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. One interesting connection that Jim Carrey has to Iowa is he loves transcendental meditation. And so I think he gets down to Fairfield. I don't know how frequently, but, but, but more than once or twice, uh, mm-hmm. he actually gave the commencement address at Maharishi um, University of Management, MUM in Fairfield. And it's on YouTube, you can see it, but he basically said, you know, um, I thought about becoming an accountant. My dad became an accountant and then he lost his job and he was just as funny as I was. And he thought, well, I might as well love what I'm doing and go into comedy and follow my heart because I can lose my job as an accountant. And I, I always, and so I think your dad was probably thinking yeah, like, in the interest no, of protection, true. it is good to think about that. But on the other hand, I think almost the greater risk is the life unlived. I mean, what if you had been a judge? I think you'd be a great judge. You have a great sense of equanimity and balance and fairness. I think you would, you would have been a fantastic judge, but gosh, I'm glad you didn't become a judge. I mean, <laughs> You, you, you don't have any regrets on that. And so you, you, you progressed on this career from Luther College. And then you decide you want to sort of try to make it as a performing artist. What was the point where you thought, wow, I think I might be able to actually have the chops to do that? Because a lot of people think they have the chops, but don't. What, what was the point where you think like, okay, I'm actually going to be um, a full-time performing artist, primarily focused on opera? Well, I don't know if I've ever actually had that moment. (laughs) I think that what happens, I, I think a whole lot more just in smaller doses. So I think this is what I want to do right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to keep dedicating myself to this for the next couple of years. So how do I maintain that? How do I keep going? And so it's just trying to figure out, instead of looking at the long road, I think I'm looking down at my feet and trying to find the next place to immediately in front of me to put my foot. You know what I mean? So you because- have a big, you know, where you made the, a huge, like Eric Cutler, for example, won the national Met competition, right? Yeah. So I think that was sort of his stamp to say like, that's my ticket to entry. Did you have any of those moments where it's like, I got selected to do X or you got a great opera review from one of the big, like an up and coming artist. Did you have sort of one of those breakthrough moments where it was like, oh my gosh, I got this role and I can't believe it's me. I, I have, I've, most of the big moments in my life have come from people taking a risk on me and asking me to do something that I wasn't even sure that I could do. So um, I would say 
The first one was Spate Jenkins. Spate Jenkins used to be the general director of Seattle Opera. And I was a young artist in Seattle Opera, uh, but he didn't really pay much attention to me when I was a young artist. But then several years later, after I came back from France, actually, that's another, the France story is another one. But anyway, after I came back from France, I was a young artist at the Opera National de Paris. I did an audition for him. And I... I cannot express to you how little I had worked at that point. I mean, I was literally just getting started and Seattle Opera was a big opera company. And so I was just going for a general audition and I was hoping that he would give me a cover or a small role. And I went in and I sang for him and we had a nice conversation. And at the end of the audition, he said to me, I'm really, really glad to have heard you and we're gonna find something for you to do in Seattle. And I was thrilled and I said, oh, it's good. I'm gonna get to be, you know, the third um, tree from the left. And I was thrilled about being the third tree from the left. And then my agent came out because she was there too. And she said, he's trying to decide right now between giving you Leonora in Trovatore, which is the soprano lead, or uh, the soprano lead in Mephistophile of Boito. And I, these are both enormous roles. Mm-hmm. And I had no experience at all. And I said, wait, you mean like the cover? No, no, he's going to give you the role. <laughs> and I was like, what? I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And then... Uh, because he agreed to hire me for that, all of these smaller, more regional opera companies uh, with less risk-taking artistic directors started hiring me for the same role because my agent was able to say, well, you know, Spate Jenkins just hired her for, to sing Trovatore mm-hmm. in three years. And so they said, well, we'll take her next year to sing Trovatore or we'll take her in two years. And so basically he opened a lot of doors for me by taking a risk. And that was a huge, huge thing for me. Um, also, the Young Artist Program in Paris was a huge um, boon for my career because I had had a lot of trouble getting into Young Artist Programs in America. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had a wonderful conversation. I was very grateful to Diane Zola, who was in Houston at the time. And she, I had done an audition and she called me and she said, listen, I just want you to know, we liked your audition. You're a good singer, but we can't give you a space in the in Young Arts program because there's just nothing we can do with you. You're a dramatic, you're a budding dramatic soprano and we don't have any work for you. There's, you would just sit there and we need somebody who can do small roles and the repertoire is not appropriate for you. And mm-hmm. we're really sorry because we liked your audition, but it's not gonna work. I appreciated that because it was information that I needed. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Paris And the attitude in Paris, because they're state funded was, we don't care if there's nothing she can do. She's a young uh, singer with an important big voice that we need to um, help in her process of getting ready to be a professional. And so we're just gonna pay her to sit around and watch other people that are 10, 15, 20 years ahead of her. And she doesn't have to do anything for us. And so Paris, just accepted me into the Young Artist Program, basically with the same idea that Diane Zola said, which is, you're not very useful at this point. They knew I wasn't very useful, and they said, we don't care. You're, 
important. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into a topic and feel free to share as little or much as you want. Um, you are a person of color. Um, and did, did, did that affect your trajectory, do you think, at all um, in terms of getting um, typecast? I mean, I'm sure a lot of times people are like, oh, you're a person of color. You need to do 4D and Bess. Um, or what, or, or did you find the opera world open to a person of color um, in terms of developing that? One show on Netflix is with um, Debbie, I think it, who is it? Who's the one that was in Flashdance who does dance? But she did ballet, like this dance company for children of color in LA. And it was really good because she was like, yeah, no, and, and it was Houston that she had talked about that, yeah, it's like as a person of color ba ballet dancer, it was just, they were actually pretty open in the 80s. Like, we don't want that. Did you find that? Or was it more just sort of, no, you're just not the right type um, for this uh, particular role. If you could just expand on that. Well, I mean, I think from my vantage point, of course, it's impossible to know completely because most of the people that give me feedback that's negative, for better or for worse, they're not really clear. I mean, Diane Zola is one of the few people that actually took the time to give me any feedback. Most people just say, we're not interested right now, or it's not what we're looking for. Something that's really general that doesn't, uh, I'm sure that I have been accepted or rejected because of how I look, but I'm not sure what percentage of that is about my actual skin color what of it is about the fact that I'm six feet, one inch tall? Mm -hmm. What is, you know, maybe I'm too heavy for some people. Maybe I'm, you know, I don't know. I think, yes, I think that there are some places probably where being not white didn't help, but I'm sure there are also some situations where being not uh, five foot five and a hundred and 20 pounds didn't help. Um, so uh, I think I've just learned to accept who I am and to be the best version of myself oh, that I, I can be and let the chips fall where they may. But I also recognize that I have incredible, I'm fortunate. Uh, and that is a huge privilege for me to say that, to be able to say that, to just let the chips fall where they may, because, you know, um, I've managed to do a lot in my life and I've always had, when the stream of opportunity dries up because it does dry up, I've always had the resources, financial, educational, uh, um, family support required, to be able to pick up stakes and move to where I can literally find a new stream of opportunity. And there are lots of people that can't do that. I mean, if I had been unwilling to move to France, if I had a family that was not uh, willing or able to support me in that, if, if the money was just too much to, to deal with, if the cultural differences were too overwhelming, then my career probably would have never got to start, gotten started to begin with. I, I love that, that you had that connection to France because, you know, I think of Paris as such a, and, and France in general, as such an un-American place in the sense of it <laughs> seems so different, yet from the founding of our republic, 
we've had this intimate connection with France, the United States, and they seem fascinated by sort of the insouciant quality of, of Americans that sort of unbound by traditions and these sorts of things. But while at the same time maintaining this distance, you think of Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson in Paris, you know, you think of, you know, Morse and some of the great painters from like the 1840s, 40s, David McCullough uh, talks about that. And then a, a little bit, I, a book I haven't read, I think it involves like Ernest Hemingway, maybe a movable feast that talks about the writers that came to Paris in the, you know, teens and 20s and, and, and that sort of milieu, but in particular for writers of color that came to Paris and were just sort of freed uh, from the racial prejudice they experienced in the United States. And of course, this is early 20th century and the way in which Paris just sort of allowed them to be untethered from that toxicity and allowed them to grow. And then they were able to come back in some cases and say, and, and give back. So I, I just think it's interesting that it's almost like you're part of that long line of connections that we have between the United States and Paris that sort of opened up your career. And now it's redounding to our benefit here in the United States. So I just think it's cool that you're part of that. And I will also say that my going to Paris was not coincidental. I went, I applied to the Young Artist Program in Paris, not because I knew anything about the Young Artist Program, but because when the doors remained shut for me in America, my father had, this was in 2001, 2002, and my father died in 2001. And I remember when I was just, I had no idea where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And it was running out. I mean, I, I couldn't go further. And my father said to me before he died, he said, if you go to Europe, go to France. Because he was in World War II. My father was born in 1921. And I was, uh, his, I was his second child from a, the third marriage. And he was 56 when I was born. So he had lived quite a full life before I was even conceived. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... He, in the World War, in the Second World War, spent a lot of time in France, spoke French, uh, and was an unofficial interpreter because he was Black and couldn't be an official interpreter. But he was attached to a lower general, and the fact that he could speak French probably saved his life. And he had a wonderful time in France, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he was living through a war, uh, because he felt... Um, at home there and he almost didn't come back to America um, because he loved it there so much and so he said to me in France they will embrace you and they like the other they like exotic people and you will do just fine in France and so I heard that in my head I love it. and I literally went I remember I was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the time, I went onto Google, or maybe it was Yahoo at the time, and I wrote Paris Opera Young Artist. And there just happened to be a program. And so I went and auditioned, and they took me. I had no connections to them. I had never heard of them before. I just went. So well, that was- That isn't, do you have any of his papers? Um, in terms of experience in World War II and in the 1940s? You know, he never talked about it. 
I mean, he never talked about the war, the actual war. He talked about all of the adjacent activities, you know, all the girlfriends he had. One of the reasons why I want to do a DNSA test is because I'm sure I probably have some half siblings <laughs> over there because I well, think no. he had a good time. <laughs> no, but what I love about it though, I mean, one of my favorite authors is Malcolm Gladwell and people are just like, how do you find all these interesting stories? He's like, they're all over the place. I'm yeah. like, your dad's life, that, that's a movie. That's a screenplay. Yeah. No, I know. So maybe that's your, one of your acts in your wonderful life is to write a novel inspired yeah. by your dad's experience. So that, that's just so inspiring. Um, so, so let's sort of wrap it up because I know you're a working artist. You got a lot of things on the agenda. <laughs> um, I wanted to get a little bit out. I'm going to do a podcast on the habits of Weston Noble, our choir director. And, um, I, you know, so for, I'll start it off and say one thing that I remember from Weston is that he always used the full hour of rehearsal. So for example, if we finished one piece and we had five minutes left, I'd always be like, oh, let's leave. But no, he's like, we got five minutes. And those five minutes add up over the course of an entire year. Uh, and, and we would do that. So that was one habit. Another habit is Every time we'd get to rehearsal, didn't he always have the sense that he couldn't believe how lucky he was to be there? Um, he was like, oh my God, I get to be a choir director at Luther College and to bring that sense of vocation and mission to his job and to, and to have that spirit radiate out. So what would be one habit that you observed that made Weston such a, just a marvelous character? A marvelous well, character? I think what you noticed and what I noticed sort of overlap, and I'm probably saying the same thing you're saying from the from my angle, from my perspective. One of the things that I really learned from him and that I try to do in my own musical life is that I think he took great care in his life to protect the joy of musical discovery. He was always, it was never work for him. Uh, it might've been work, but it didn't look like it. And he didn't make us feel like it was work. He um, approached musical expression and rehearsing to figure out how to express oneself musically. He approached all of that with the curiosity and the open-mindedness of a child, even though he had probably worked on a lot of the things, the repertoire that we worked on, he'd worked on it before with countless other choirs. He knew it like the back of his hand, especially, you know, every year doing the Messiah, for example, he knew that piece. He didn't need to go through it with us, but he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the process, the nuts and bolts, the, the re-examining. And I think that that is what makes the difference in my own life and keeps me from getting stale as an artist. And, um, I just have to constantly protect the childlike fascination with singing that brought me to it in the first place. And I think that he was a living embodiment of someone who protects that fascination that he had for music. The, the joy and exuberance of awe of, of living. And, you know, I, I think to sort of put a footnote on that, there was one line from one of the songs that we sang that saying, I will make all things new, right? Yes. So the music, the sense of joy was constantly renewing in his spirit. And, you know, it was funny because a lot of people would try to observe Weston and think like, 
what, what what's the secret sauce? Like what technical expertise? And I always sort of joke, this isn't a technique. For people who are listening, I'm, I'm descri- describing sort of how we, there are other more technically masterful directors. There right. are probably greater technicians than, and although Wessner was very accomplished, so I'm not imputing that at all. But I think what made Nordic so dynamic and what still makes it as Andy Lass carries on that tradition is to connect from the gut. You know, Tim Peter talked about singing from the gut and he would hit his stomach. And I think that's the art of life is to sing from the gut, from down low and connect your mind, your body and the spirit and live in just sort of uncynical joy. And he did that until the day he died. I saw him two weeks before he died with Nora and he was he was just incredible. So yeah. what, what a legacy. And, and, his, and his joy keeps on giving which I love about it, that we can sort of spread that light because I think that's what he so effectively did. So, wow. So one final piece, because I know we got to wrap it up here. Um, you got to give me one self-care thing that you do because I've done, done a lot of midlife crisis self-care like yoga and getting up early and all that good stuff. And then one book recommendation and then we will send you off on your life's mission. Well, this has been a joy for me. So I really, it's, it's uh, no imposition at all. For self-care, my self-care is very easy because, because I travel so much and I have so little control over my environment. I have found that getting too attached to anything that's too complicated or too site or person specific is not good because I don't always have space to do yoga or um, have time to, or ability to, to go to a gym. Uh, But one thing that I can always do is find a park wherever I am and go for a walk. I believe walking is so important. Uh, I learned to love walking when I was living in Paris, actually. Um, And I would go every Sunday and I would walk from one side of Paris to the other. Paris is not very big. And so it would take about an hour there and an hour back, hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I recommend either going by yourself or going with someone who doesn't talk very much because I think part of the thing that's important about so, so we can't walk together then Although I'm working <laughs> I'm working on listening but no I mean I don't, for, mean, though. I, I don't necessarily mean that you need to not talk at all yes. but I think you need to leave space because the wonderful thing about walking, at least in my life, is that it's sort of a natural precursor to allowing your brain to get to a more meditative state. But that doesn't work if you're actively talking all the time and, and having conversations and, and ruminating actively with this part of your brain, with the front frontal part. You need to let the, the back part work a little bit. And to do that, you need to be quiet. And so... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say to that point, I'm just reading this book called The Philosophy of Bruce Lee by his daughter, Shannon Lee. And Bruce often talked about having your mind as an empty cup so that when you're listening to someone, which I just didn't do, by the way, I violated this principle, but that your mind is an open cup so that you can receive the wisdom of the person that you're with in the moment. Yes. That's a good, so that's really what you're getting at is to be in the moment. Yes, but also I'm, I would like to encourage people to find a way to access their inner wisdom because there's all kinds of wisdom within the animal self mm-hmm. that we are born with. Mm-hmm. Our understanding of 
nature and our relationship to other people and nature around us and where we fit in, how we fit in. That's all programmed. But we have spent years and years and years overriding it with intellectual, you know, mishigas that we have added, uh, which is all here. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, these societal norms and, you know, educational constructs, they're all useful, but not in to the expense of the education and the information that we have by being human, which is already pre-programmed. So I think it's important for us to give ourselves, our brains space to have those two parts of our brains talk to each other. Right. Love it. You know what I mean? It's very Deepak Chopra. <laughs> I've also been reading a lot of him too. So, uh, so uh, and Mary Elizabeth, of course, and you're also going to get a book recommendation. So yes. what book recommendation do you have for our audience? Well, you know, I have to be completely honest that I have been reading a lot lately for uh, required reading, let's say, things that I've either given to students because I teach English on the side, or, um, you know, I spend a lot of time reading nonfiction, like what's going on in the world, the Atlantic, and the new, this kind of level of stuff. But a book that I have reread many times, and that every time I read it, I find new layers uh, of importance for my own life is The Happiness Hypothesis, and it's by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And the, the subtitle is Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And I think there are just a lot of really good nuggets of information that I have been able to recall and um, help my brain take the space it needs to understand where, how to process trauma, how to process change, um, how to process uh, emotions that are unruly, supposedly. I think um, it's a good book. I would recommend it. You know, and I, this past year, I've really gotten into stoicism and it's just, I love it. So I'm a Lutheran stoic. So what do you think about that? But what I, what I love about <laughs> the ancient traditions is, is that there's, it, they're passed down through the generation, at least, you know, from Stoics, two to 3,000 years. That's so incredibly powerful. And I, and I think just to learn from these traditions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, they really are, and they do have these essential truths. And if we just listen to them and soak them up, um, I read Marcus Aurelius' Meditations every morning. It's like my Bible, and it's just so mm. good. It's so human. So I hope you can experience that. So... Wow. Mary Elizabeth, I think this, okay. So I think this is going to be my moment. This is like one of my best podcasts ever. It's so good. It's so good. And I so appreciate you taking the time to meet with well, me. It's really been a pleasure. It's what it brings back a lot of wonderful memories and, you know, you ask good questions, the questions, the answers that I was asked to find in myself, I think will uh, they've crystallized some information for me about where I am in my life right now. So I appreciate it. You know what I do? And just to footnote that, 
is I, I'm really gotten into journaling. Do you journal? No, I should. Oh, you should. Okay. I so buy, okay. So, so this is my send off to you. Buy a moleskin journal and start a morning and an evening journaling practice. And even yes. if it's just one sentence, it is so therapeutic. And what made me think about it is that you said, when the idea crystallizes, there's something about like neurologically, when the mind is thinking, and then the, then the physical act of putting it on paper, it just like, it crystallizes it. And it's yes. sort of self-directing your life. So that's my gift to you today is that thank you started journaling practice. That's so. a good idea. That's a good well, idea. Well, Mary, thank you so much. Uh, no and problem. So friends, yes, I really appreciate it. And I hope we can stay in touch. And sometime maybe at Luther College, we'll talk about this awesome rocking yes. cast that we did together. Yes. Hopefully I'll be back to America to sing one of these days. That'd be lovely. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And we'll stay in touch. Bye. I'll just do this down here. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of the Rocking Cast as much as I had putting it on. I think Mary Elizabeth Williams represents the best of liberal arts. She could have done so many different things. So grateful that she chose her career in opera. And I think it aligns with a lot of things that we've talked about in the Rocking Cast to bring on people that have sort of found their life's purpose. Mary, it's opera. And to see what it really looks like when you find that total alignment in mind, body, and spirit. So, so much gratitude that she was able to come on to this episode of The Rocking Cast. I'm hoping that if you enjoyed this episode, that you'll spread the word of The Rocking Cast. Spread it to your friends and your family. Leave a review on Apple or Spotify so that we can continue to spread the message of The Rocking Cast, which is a liberal arts podcast designed to share a sense of wonder so that you can thrive in life and mind and body and spirit. So we're going to have a lot of good episodes on this uh, continuing series of the Rockney Cast. We're going to be doing uh, pretty here soon a daily series of the teachings of Bruce Lee. I think you guys are going to love that. Uh, we're also going to bring on Alicia Deal uh, to discuss her experiences with fasting. Uh, Alicia's a really good five person. She's based here out of Iowa City. Um, she she has so many knowledge into health and beauty and wellness. And so you can really love this episode too. You know, I've been doing a lot of intermittent fasting. So it's primarily going to be focused on um, fasting, but Alicia also has a really interesting life story. So I'm really excited to bring her on the show. So keep on tuning into these episodes of the Rockney Cast. I'm, I'm even, I think I might even have my sister Susie. We're going to have one on physical therapy and the French philosopher Montaigne. So stay tuned for that. Um, so continue to tune into these episodes of the Rocky Cast. We're really loving putting them on. And so stay tuned for the future episodes of the Rocky Cast. So much gratitude for all of you tuning in.